like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club now, in this episode, we will begin our look at Ubik. Ubik, this is Dick's 1969 novel. So we're getting to the end. We're getting to the end of the 1960s. So we'll be ready for kind of a, a new season, the 1970s, in short order. But first, we have to get through two more novels and a few more short stories. So it's going to be Ubik and Galactic Patio. But we'll do Ubik first. Um, so, but first, I wanted to look at some of some more of Richard's letters. Uh, he's he's continued to send me letters on different works. So this is way back to now wait for last year. This is what he said. This is, of course, an unconscious allegory with history appearing to repeat itself about the Axis powers. Mussolini is recast as Molinari. So I would assume that means Frensky is Hitler, while the Riegs would be the Allied forces. They are another variation of Dick's insect theme motif, which in this case are a light metaphor in the battle to claim their heritage and freedom against the oppressive Starmen and us. They are odious to both of them, but the starmen have a more sinister reasons pertaining to power and wanting to banish them. Don't care any more about us than them. As you said, we have chosen the wrong ally. I would have thought the drug experience here was subjective from the way it's described. There's nothing to suggest that its makers could have created it as a weapon of war to use for time travel, but it distorts the normal view of time. The experience is probably spiritual, though, since its takers appear un... Uh, unsubstantial when used, although Molinari does use it to bring versions of itself back to the present, but in this case, it isn't made certain if there are fake souvenirs of the experience under the drug. I'm reminded here of The Rock leaving its mark on Rick Deckard after the transition into Andrew's Dream Electric Sheep. Dick doesn't seem concerned here, though, with the effects drugs will have, including on himself. That prefigures a scanner darkly. Okay, just a few things here, Richards. I understand it. It does seem that the drug seems to shift people in time. They, of course, bring the antidote back. So that can't just be a hallucination or a spiritual experience if it has real material effects. Um, and yeah, I, I always read it that Molinari is actually bringing these bodies back. So I don't know. I guess we could try to interpret it different ways. But I wouldn't say there's nothing that suggests that, that they could have been used as a weapon of war. So, but anyways, the stuff on Friends again, the Riegs, the, the Hitler-Mussolini connection, I, I totally agree with. Um, so his, his last comment on this. Kathy Sweetson is a woman whom it seems we can loathe and sympathize with. She is powerful, but uh, depreciating depiction of a female character that was typical of Dick at this time. She was self-destructive and harmful to those close to her, not caring that she was pointing air closer to the center of the vortex that will destroy her and him. She is just as much a vulnerable victim as her husband, though, and the forces she plays with. It seems, too, that... He could escape from her, but her condition causes him to care for her more and perhaps be drawn deeper into the web of her plight rather than be without her. All right, yeah. So, um, I don't disagree. Kathy Sweetson, of course, is a very important character in that novel. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess, I guess we're going to have to kind of leave that up in the air, whether time travel is really possible with that, that drug. It, it, I always read it that they're really kind of time-shifting. Now, maybe it's in different parallel universes kind of like how the precogs do it in in ubik actually 
Oh, and the thing about uh, Deckard, yeah. There, we, well, we saw actually Isidore too, when he goes in the empathy box, actually has this this experience where he actually is injured while in the empathy box. So um, these things do manifest physically, to be sure. Okay, he wrote me also a letter on, we can remember it for you wholesale. He doesn't say much, he just says, this isn't one of my favorite pieces of his, despite the importance of its themes. It doesn't seem to have the quirky uneasiness and fiery imagination that defines his best works. The aliens didn't seem significant to the plot, I didn't think. I preferred retreat syndrome. Dick's theme of memory as defining identity and humanity, though, is interesting, of course. Here, the state of thought of forgetfulness means he can't find fulfillment. It also means he can't know himself. The restoring of his memory means he can realize his ambitions. Yeah, um, everyone says empathy is central to Dick's conception of humanity, and it, and it certainly is. But, but memory is another part of that, to be sure. Um, we see that a lot with androids, actually, the implanting of the memories into androids. So they have false pasts. Um, as for Holy Quarrel, he wrote only, this is probably a sketch of a much larger work. Dick seemed to be playing with some very good concepts, which aren't fully developed. I like the idea of a machine thinking is divine through misinformation and the miracles it creates. The proliferation of the balls reminds me of the later Kipple. Yeah, okay. Maybe, I mean, I think a lo maybe a lot of stories at this time are shells of former, of, of larger works that he was thinking of. I think the evidence of this is, we can remember for, or your appointment will be yesterday. Um, what dead men say, these things become sort of shells for, for later works like Counterclock World and, and, and Ubik. So then he made some comments on the appointment will be yesterday. Will be yesterday. Um, Dick seems to be playing with ideas all the time. This is another of his rough sketches, it seems. It's far developed and coherent in Counterclock World. Agreed? In both of them, though, the theme of entropy and its opposite force, negra entropy is strong. Rebirth also means decay again, though, and no growth. I'm reminded of what Manfred perceives in Martian Time Slip. Yeah, again, this, these themes are more well-developed in Counterclock World, where we actually see, um, you know, a solution to a world of decay being em embracing life as, as, as much as you can. And that's the decision of our main character at the end. Of course, Manfred, as you recall from Martian Time Slip, sees only entropy. He only sees the end result of entropy, and that's his, that's his um, unfortunate reality. So there it is. Those are Richard's letters he sent me recently. So thanks again, Richard, for sending me your comments. I don't really disagree with anything. I just, I'm not sure how to, how to read the time travel and now wait for last year. I, I think there's plenty of evidence that it's, it's real. Whether it's never used as a weapon of war, that's, for tr tr that's um, actually addressed, I think, in the novel, where later people said it was like too, too dangerous, right? I mean, you got, of course, nuclear weapons as a model of a, of a weapon that could be used in war, but people choose not to because of the consequences that, that emerge from it. All right, so that's, that's that. Um, so let's jump into, into Ubik. So Ubik published 1969, uh, one of two novels he published that year. Um, and both of these novels are, are some of my favorite that Dick wrote. I really like Ubik. It's, it's actually one of the first of his novels I think I read. I actually assigned it to an undergraduate classroom at one point. That's kind of a novel of the 60s, um, just for fun, because it's, it dealt with a lot of interesting themes like corporate culture and 
and kind of drug use is hinted at there quite a lot, shifting realities, that kind of stuff. I thought it was a good representative work of, of Philip Dick. I only taught it the one time, though. I think I only taught it because I needed some reading for one week, so I, I fit it in. It, wasn't, it was kind of an add-on to the curriculum, but the students seemed to like it, the ones who read it anyways. As you may know, getting college students to read is a, is a bit of a hassle. So what stories? There's a few stories you might want to look at before jumping into, into Ubik. I think uh, What Dead Men Say is an important one. That deals with the concept of half-life. It's dealt with very differently in this novel, but it's, you know, and it's thematically quite different, but it's, it's where he first publishes his ideas on, on half-life, which is a way for basically the dead can then be stored in cryo and be brought out for a limited amount of time, right? But if you spread that time out between awakenings, you can actually keep people alive for quite a while. You're also going to want to review a novel or a short story, really a novella, actually. It's a, quite a long short story, called The World of Talent, uh, which he wrote, like, it was like from 54 maybe, he wrote it, published it back then. This is where he deals with the anti-sci ability. That's a, fair, it's a major plot point in the, especially the early part of the novel. And then also Simon Heal My Daughter, because we're, we're back to a novel really about, about, um, Posthumans, right? He, he hasn't really been thinking much about him. Now, posthumans pop in and out of Dick's stories. You have them in the Three Stigmata, Palmer Eldridge, for instance. Uh, you have various characters who express having psi powers or precog powers, but it's never central to the plot the way it is in, in Ubik. So in that sense, it's kind of a throwback to what he was really interested in in the, in the mid-50s, which was the place of the, of the, of the precog or the psychic in, in society. Now, this novel, I think, now, if you've read it, you know that the novel you think you're reading shifts under you, and you find out you're reading an entirely different novel by the halfway point. And that's something that's really compelling and interesting about this story. It's not very long, either. As an audiobook, it's only seven hours. And in contrast, Duantro's uh, Dream of Electric Sheep was almost ten. It was like nine or ten. So it's a much shorter novel. And it's, but it's, it shifts halfway through into a different story, right? So it makes it kind of a quick read because you're you're spending much of the time in in one story and then it flips to something else. So it that that, that kind of makes it a speedier read, I think. Now the first part. Now, now, now here's what I want to say about this. The first part of it, if it had just been this, if the, what you think this novel is, if Dick had stuck with it and made a novel about this, it would have been a good novel. I mean, it would have been a great novel. It would have been a novel about uh, basically psychic spies and then the institutions that emerged to counteract that, right, which are anti-psychic. They're called inertials, right? So basically what we have is corporate espionage in the form of psychic, you know, people get, you know, implant psychics into corporations. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, my VPN was going in and out. I've been having issues with v my VPN lately. Um, anyways, so what you have is uh, industrial espionage in the form of psychics who get implant, who were planted into corporations, and then to protect themselves, people hire these prudence corporate companies. And our main character, Glenn Runciter, runs one of these prudence companies, and they hire what are nurseries, essentially anti-teeps or anti-size, put them into the same business, and then kind of counteract the the, the, the telepaths and therefore protect the corporate secrets or whatever. And it's a really interesting idea. And it could have been developed into a whole novel and it would have still been one of Dick's 
good stories. It would have been a great Philip Dick story. It would have dealt with issues of evolution. It could have allowed him to kind of finally get his final statement on post-humans, which I don't know if he ever really does. You know, he was writing so much about that in the 50s, and he sort of stops being concerned about the post-human anymore when he gets much more obsessed with, you know, religious issues and kind of what it even means to be human, and much less post-human, right? But, you know, what we have here is the statement that, you know, every innovation, every post-human will have its counter, right? It's kind of like an evolutionary give and take. And then you just have a really interesting, you know, kind of action set piece drama where, you know, it's kind of spy versus spy, but with telepaths, right? That would have been a great novel, right? But halfway through, Dick says, we're not in this novel anymore. We're an entirely different story we're telling. And it gets really bizarre, uh, obviously. It's, it's a bit hard to interpret, I think. I think the major themes of this have to do with, with consumerism. And it's, it's really, you know, if he's not going to write his final statement on, on, on the post-human, fine. He does seem to get pretty close to writing his final statement on, on inertia. Or sorry, not on Nershon, on Entropy. So this is a novel about consumerism and entropy. It follows up uh, Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, which also takes consumerism and Kipple. That's the metaphor for entropy in that novel. Here it's, it's looked at much more in a, in a metaphysical way. Right? You know, the... All right then, so in this episode I'll look at chapters 1 through 4 of, of Ubik. Um, the first thing I think I'll say about it is we're obviously in a novel where consumerism plays some role. And if, if you're there, there's clues here that we're really not in Kansas anymore. Right. One of these is that each chapter has a, has an epigraph that's essentially framed as an advertisement. Right. So this advertisement in the chapter one is I'll just read it to you. Friends, this is cleanup time, and we're discounting all our silent electric ubics by this much money. Yes, we're throwing away the blue book, and remember, every ubic in our lot has been used only as directed. So what we have here is a used car lot, but instead of, or electric car, electric somethings, maybe scooters, but it's, you know, it's presented as, they change the word ubic, right? And every chapter will, will do the same thing, so I think there's one that's like a razor blade, and one is like some kind of medicine, one is cleaning supplies or something. So there's many different ads throughout. I don't think they have any really meaning to them. It's just Dick having fun with ads and the ad culture and, and, and consumerism. I mean, ultimately, if we want to come out with what Dick is actually trying to do here is he's saying it seems that we can only really experience God through consumer goods, right? If, if God comes back, he'd come as an advertisement. Right. And this is a very different view of consumerism than and, and an advertisement than what he had earlier on, where the advertisement is just an annoying thing as something that it kind of ruins our life or intrudes in our in our happiness in various ways. Here, the advertisement is, uh, you know, almost a, the way by which the supreme entity can reveal itself to us. So. Um, you can read through those. They're a lot of fun to read. They're an interesting part of the novel. So chapter one, uh, the novel begins with with uh, Glenn Runciter. Glenn Runciter runs a company that's called a, a, a Prudence Corporation, and he's just one of many of these Prudence companies. What they do is they hire inertials. Inertials are people who have anti-psi abilities, 
anti-precog or anti-telepath, and then companies who think they've been infiltrated by size will then hire a company like Runsitters to, to nullify those, those spies. So it's a protection. It's like, it's about, it's basically like security. It's essentially a glorified security company. Um, but much more cooler because it's, it's um, you know, they're, they're anti-precogs. Right, so he's running this company, but what he's learned is that a few more telepaths that they've been following and keeping track of have disappeared. And this is a big problem because, and actually the name of the guy they have is S. Dole Melophone. And this is a big problem because it suggests that these people are going to work somewhere. That these size have disappeared off the planet and they'd only disappear if they had a big job in front of them, if they had something to do. So he wants to know where they are because if he can find that company that's infiltrated by these size, then that's a big paycheck for, for Runsitter. And his company's not doing poorly, but it's, it's, ha it's having some struggles. It's having some difficulties. So due to this growing problem, he decides to contact his dead wife. And, and at this point, we're introduced to the concept of Half-Life. Now, I do want to say that I think Dick here seems to be presenting this as almost like his fantasy of the ideal marriage, right? Where, first of all, Runsitter is like 90 years old. He's Jerry. He's got artifog organs. He's been around a long, long time. And his wife was 20 when she died. So you get the beautiful wife. She dies. She's in half-life. And you only have to then talk to her when you want, right? Because you have to go to her, right? So I think it's... You know, I think Dick at this point must have been really frustrated with his marriage because he, he imagines this, this, this ideal situation where, where one only has to talk to his wife, you know, when, when, when he wills it. So then, then we move to the beloved Brethren Moratorium. So it's not a mortuary, it's, it's a moratorium, right? Because they're not dead, they're, they're just waiting to die, I guess. Now, so Half-Life's limited. You might only have like 10 days or 15 days, depending on when your body has been, you know, brought to the moratorium, right? If you if wait too long, I think you lose your Half-Life. But, you know, you have a few, you have a little bit of time if you're, if you're, if you're gotten quickly enough. But you got, you got to spread it out, right? And if you use it all up quickly, see your loved ones a lot after they died they're going to be dead really dead soon right so the goal is to kind of have a balance between remaining in connection with them and you know and, and spreading out their life in fact the owner of the beloved brethren moratorium herbert von vogelsang he has this desire to be woken up from half-life just one day every century so he can see the total unfolding of 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 humanity well into the future Right. But he realized that this is probably impractical because keeping someone at Half-Life costs money. Right. And no one's going to you know, pay for their ancestor from thousands of years ago to to keep waking up for a few minutes every hundred years. So he doesn't think it's practical, but it shows you the potential of what Half-Life would be. Now, we also learn early on in this novel, in Chapter two in particular, that people in Half-Life experience have experiences. They seem to be able to communicate with one another. They can actually compete for a kind of psychic space almost. They see things. They, they see lights. In fact, the Tibetan Book of the Dead seems to is told. We're told here that the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead describes half-life. Um, and in fact, now people are given the Tibetan Book of the Dead when they're dying to prepare for, for half-life. So Runsterder arrives then to see his wife, Ellen. He doesn't have like the claim tick. It's almost like you go to the cleaners, right? You need to get the claim check to, so they can find the 
the person. He doesn't have it anymore, but they end up finding Ellen Ella for him. And Herbert, the boss man, talks to Runciter a little bit about how he once used uh, anti-psi inertials previously. And he had some problem with the psi infiltration. But Runciter is really here for business, so he immediately calls for, for his wife to be brought out. And that's chapter one. So chapter one introduces quite a lot to us. It introduces the concept of half-life. It introduces uh, a little bit about Runciter's business. We're going to learn more about it in the future. Um, we, we know we're dealing with the themes of, of life after death, which we've seen a lot of in, for instance, uh, Counterclock World. In, we've seen it recently in Counterclock World. But we're also in a novel about the post-human and the psi and the competition between size and anti-size and how that plays out in, in the business world. So that's chapter one. Chapter two is mostly about the conversation between Ella and, and Glenn Runciter, and then something strange happens. And that's going to be an important plot point later in the story. So now we get to sit down with, with Ella and, and Runciter. It's a very much like a scene, almost like if you were visiting someone in prison, because you kind of have to talk through the phone and you see them. The difference is, I guess, in a prison, they, they actually move their lips. Here, it's just like a body is pulled up, you know, like a cryotube, and you talk through them, and they kind of talk psychically or through through their mind with you. So that's that's an interesting kind of imagery for this. Now, another thing we have here is that she begins to talk about really bizarre things. She's talking about what she's seen in Half-Life. She's talking about this light, which they're warned not to approach. This, you know, She's talking about these dreams she's having, and it's all really bizarre and a bit annoying for, for Glenn. And again, I think we got another Philip K. Dick fantasy here, specifically the fantasy of, of one trying to have a serious conversation and the wife babbling on about you know, some... You know, maybe a dream or a TV show or something like that. And and Glenn, you know, time's limited and he wants to get right to, to business. He does explain, though, how she had wanted to to be kept in on the business. So he's going there kind of as a courtesy. And he, you know, he doesn't want to wake her up too much because it's going to use up her life. But at the same time, she sort of wanted this. Quote, knowledge of... The fact that she has a limited life underwrote his failure to rev her up more often. He rationalized this way, that it doomed her that to activate her constituted sin against her. As to her own state of wishes before her death and in early half-life encounters, this had become handily nebulous in his mind. Anyways, he would know better, being four times as old as she. What had she wished? To continue to function with him as co-owner of Runciter Associates. Something vague on that order. Well, he had granted his wish. This wish. Now, for example, and six or seven times in the past, he did consult her at each crisis of the organi organization, as he was doing at this moment. Um, so he's trying to do business, but she's babbling on about her dreams and things. He finally is able to get her to talk business and to get serious about the problem that the company's having. You know, what does it mean that these these telepaths are leaving Earth? And at the just as this happened, Glenn is suddenly talking to a, a boy named Jory. He calls to the boss man, he calls to vocal song saying, you know, I'm going to sue you if you don't get my wife back. And then he's able to explain what happens, that this is actually a very, very powerful individual in Half-Life. A 15-year-old boy with a very, very powerful personality. And the bad news here is that occasionally when people are next to each other in cryo, the more powerful personality can actually dominate and take over the minds of the people who 
um, maybe have a weaker individuality or personality. And the only thing they can do is split up the bodies, but the damage may be done and Ella may be, may be soon lost to them because, you know, she might just not be able to keep her individual personality anymore because of the power of, of Jory. So we kind of have an interesting mystery here about who this Jory is and, and he's going to have a role in the rest of the story. But for now, we're just introduced to this, um, this problem. But the more most important thing we learn in this chapter is that half-life is an experience. It's something that people, you know, when they're, it's not just they're sleeping until they, or they're just blank until they wake up. They're actually having experiences while in half-life. And we don't really know fully what they are. It doesn't seem people out of half-life can really experience it or can really describe it very well. But Jory, for instance, does say that he's bored talking to other half-lifers. He wants to talk to, to Runsitter. That's why he's taken over Ella. So they seem to have even ambitions and desires while in half-life. This will all be important in the later part of the novel when we start to get an even closer and more intimate look at half-life. All right, so in Chapter 3, we meet Joe Chip. He's, he's going to be sort of our main character for much of, of the novel. He's the centerpiece of it. And he's presented as a pretty pathetic guy here. He Now, one thing that's kind of a running gag in this novel is that all the appliances are coin-operated, even the ones in your house. So, like, if you want to open the refrigerator, it costs five cents, maybe five cents to get certain food items out, an extra five cents, that is. The door costs five cents, the bathroom costs money, all these things. And he can't afford it. That's, that's the point. He doesn't have, like, coins in his pocket to feed these 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 appliances in his house so um yeah it's it's kind of a running gag about him that he can't really control his finances he doesn't really have any financial responsibility he has huge debt he when he tries later on in this chapter to call for a cleaning service from the apartment complex he lives in there he's like blacklisted for any of these kind of services because of of his inability to pay right he's got all these different like credit credit shits that he's always trying to shift debt from here and there and so for a novel about consumerism you almost need a character who is in deep consumer debt right especially uh when you look at the consumer debt levels these days it's certainly um a big issue in the u.s economy and maybe the global economy too consumer debt and so having joe chip as as the debtor is i think an interesting commentary on on consumerism in general um he's a, he's a he's actually a consumer in many ways when he first gets up he goes to the paint machine for gossip right and he and he hears about he gets gossip about stanton mick mix mick's important for the novel so he's kind of introduced here he's actually um working on trying to build low-cost emigration um, you know ships that can go like almost to the speed of light that's going to be key later on in the story but he didn't want that he didn't want that kind of gossip he wanted like low gossip so he he reapplies for a different newspaper and he gets like celebrity scandal kind of gossip that's what he wants to to read so we got a wonderful chapter here uh introducing joe chip and his rather pathetic life um jj ashwood uh, calls him and says i'm coming with a new recruit now what jj ashwood is is he's essentially a scout for runsitter he's the one who finds people who have these anti-talents brings them into the you know gives them contracts 
brings them in. And if he finds good ones, he gets a commission, right? So that's that's where he makes his money. He doesn't directly work for Runcitter, but he's one of these scouts that's out there. Now, Joe Chip's job is he he can scan for psi fields. He can determine how many inertials Runcitter will need to maybe neutralize psi activity in one place. He can judge the psionic ability or the anti psi abilities of these recruits. So he's kind of a technical guy and very important for the institution, despite his rather preposterous uh, way of living. So he gets the call from, from Ashwood that they're coming and he immediately has to like clean up his apartment because it's a big mess and he tries to get the building service to do it and they refuse to serve him because he owes too much money. And finally they arrive and he can't even open the door because he has no money to open the door, the five cents, and he has to have Ashwood pay the five cents to open the door. And then we're introduced to, to Pat. Pat is described as follows. Obviously a young, beautiful woman. It's a Philip Dick novel, so you need one of these. Quote, she stood for a moment staring at Joe, obviously no more than 17, slim and copper skinned with large dark eyes. My God, he thought, she's beautiful. She wore an Urzat canvas work shirt and jeans, heavy boots caked with what appeared to be authentic mud. Her tangle of shiny hair was tied back and knotted with a red bandana. Her rolled up sleeves showed tan, competent arms. In her imitation leather belt, she carried a knife, a field telephone unit, and an emergency pack of rations and water. On her bare, dark forearms, he made out a tattoo. Caveat emptor, it read. You wonder what that meant. So that's Pat. Um, now, Pat has, was found on a kibbutz, the kibbutz in Topeka, right? So she's, Dick has a real interest in kibbutzes. He, he had them in Martian Time Slip as one of the most interesting settlements on Mars, one of the most successful settlements on Mars. You know, kibbutz are, of course, these kind of anarchist, anarchist, communist societies, communities that were established in, in Palestine during the early days of Jewish migration to Palestine in the, in the early 20th century. Dick had some kind of fascination with them, so he, he uses them quite a lot in his, in, his, in his works. So she's from the kibbutz, but now she wants this job working for Runcitur. She's been recruited. So Joe's job then is to determine what her psiability is and to measure it, measure its, its strength, and then to determine whether Runcitur should give her a job or not. And now she's got a very, very strange ability. She's, she's an anti-precog, but she's not a typical anti-precog. She, she's actually is able, she's able to like time travel in a way to interfere with precog's ability to choose a future because she can change the past or change the future or determine which future they're in and then that will affect the precog's ability to, to predict the future. That's, so she's kind of a distortion field in that, that messes up the precog ability. She's a, it's actually a talent in its own right. It's not an inertial, really. She's not technically an inertial. Um, while they're talking about this, they, Joe discusses a little bit the philosophy of, of the Runcitter business. Runcitter seems to agree with this, but Joe here is expressing it. And that is that it's a simply evolution. With, with the psi abilities when they were developed, it was natural that an anti-psi ability would develop the same way that, you know, once birds had beaks, then mollusks needed shells. That kind of, um, you know, or how, you know, how flight developed or how any kind of evolutionary adaptation took place. It's in response to a, a threat, right, in your environment. And now the threat in the environment is the psi ability. And so it's just natural that an anti-psi ability would develop alongside of it. This is really what uh, 
Brunsitter seems to believe too, because he talks about his own business in terms of like a public service. He doesn't see it simply as, you know, money making. He really does believe that he's doing something important for the for the world. He's providing a fundamental service. So we get this description of how the precogs work. It's actually one of the better ones that Dick gives us in, you know, in all of his precog stories. Let me explain how the anti-precog generally functions. Functions, in fact, as in every case we know of. The precog sees a variety of futures laid out side by side like cells in a beehive. For him, one has greater luminosity, and that's he picks. Once he has picked it, an anti-precog can do nothing. The anti-precog has to be pre present when the precog is in the process of deciding, not after. The anti-precog makes all futures seem equally real to the precog. He aborts his talent to choose at all. So that's what the normal anti-precog does. But that's not what Pat does. Quote, now this is uh, JJ at Ashwood explaining her ability. She says, Pat controls the future. That one lumina luminous possibility is luminous because she's gone to the past and changed it. By changing it, she changes the present, which includes the precog. He's affected without knowing it. And his talent seems to work, whereas it really doesn't. So one of the other advantages of her anti-talent over the other precog talents, the other and greater is that she can cancel out a precog's decision after he's made it. So her ability to kind of shift in time, she says it's not really time travel, but she can somehow be in different times and, and affect it. I think in World of Talent, that short story, Dick plays with a character that can sort of do this as well. So this isn't the first time we've seen it. I, it's definitely there's a story somewhere where there's a character who can, you know, shift time. It's interesting here that the, the, it's actually explained that children develop anti-psi talents really in response to psi parents. It was usually psi parents who gave birth to children who developed anti-psi talents. And the theory is that they just develop it as a defense against their psi parents. And, you know, the way children always are trying to get around their parents' rules and, and, and one-up them and, you know, assert their autonomy within the family, that's going to happen in a psychic family as well. I, I thought that was a really interesting addition here. Um, so anyways, Ashwood leaves, and then it's just Pat and Joe, and Pat starts taking off her clothes, and she says, well, Joe's like, what are you doing? I, it's not like that. I mean, I'm not going to sleep with you for a job. And she says, oh, au contraire. I actually have already been in the future, and see, you've, you've, you didn't decide, you decided not to hire me. She actually had the piece of paper where he did not recommend her for hiring. She says, well, if I do this, then you'll hire me. And she had another piece of paper which has you know, like hire this woman, but with a cro two crosses, underlined crosses on that. That, he says, means, you know, hire with the maximum salary. But in fact, it's a code that he gives to Runsitter to say, watch out for this person. This person could be dangerous. She gives him a little bit of money and, and basically moves in, like pays the rent, pays some of the rent for the month and, and essentially moves in at that point, um, kind of laying claim over him. So she's a very much a dominating figure. Joe Chip is... Although he's, a, he's got ability, he's got a talent, he's got a good job, he's in debt, he's kind of pathetic. Pat comes in as a real assertive force that, that transforms his life. So that's chapter three. Chapter three is our introduction to this character of, um, of, of Joe. Okay, so we can move on to chapter four. And um, we return to New York with Glenn Runciter as he is just got back from Zurich seeing his wife and she recommended more advertisement for as a solution. I don't know if 
you know, quite why it seems the idea is the more advertising, there'll be more people who will seek out their business. And maybe one of those will be the, you know, the people who have determined that or that are infiltrated with these size that have disappeared, um, you know, off the planet. So that seems to be her plan. We meet a few new characters in this chapter, um, primarily uh, Mrs. Frick, who is the geriatric uh, secretary for Glenn Runciter, and she's kind of there as, as a little bit more comedy. There's a lot of comedy in this novel already, but she's there just as kind of this unreplaceable secretary who sort of annoys Runciter, but she seems, through her ability, is, is kind of indispensable to, to him. So the main thing that happens in this chapter is they get a new client comes in. It's, the name is Mrs. Wirt, and she's working for some other people. It's a very, very big job, but she can't quite say how big it is. Now, the normal procedure for these kinds of jobs is they'll get the, the job, then they'll send in someone like Joe Chip to evaluate how much side talent or, or how many inertials they'll need to mitigate the side talent that's available there, because this all can be measured. And she says, no, we don't have time for doing that. And, and um, you know, Runster lectures her on this. It's kind of a big deal. You know, it's also about the safety of the inertials, because sometimes inertials get killed in this. It is kind of a spy versus spy game. Quote, we wouldn't know how many inertials to bring in. This is Runster talking to her. Or what kind or where to station them. Diffusing a psi operation has to be done on a systematic basis. We can't wave a magic wand or spray toxic fumes in corners. We have to balance Holus's people by individual and anti-talent for every talent. If Holus has gotten into your operation, he's done it the same way, side by side. One gets into the personnel department, hires another. That person sets up a department and takes charge of a department or requisitions a couple more. Sometimes it takes months. We can't undo in 24 hours what they've constructed over a long period of time. Big time psi activity is like a mosaic. They can't afford to be impatient and neither can we. So that's the normal procedure that he goes through, but Mrs. Miss Wirt doesn't want him to do that. She claims that her hands are tied. She can't really negotiate. She's just the spokesperson for, she's just the middleman for the, for the company. So Runstetter has 38 size. The question is, is this going to be enough to counteract Holus? Holus is the big size provider, right? So a lot of people, if they need size for spies, they'll go to Holus company. But the ones that have been missing are from Holus Corporation, for instance. So uh, he's got 38 idle sites. That's how much power he can bring to bear in, in this operation. It seems there's quite a lot of idle sites. It's one reason the company's in a bit of trouble. Now, while he's talking to her, he uses his own resident telepath to learn a little bit more about this woman. And he, she, he learns through the telepath that she works for Stanton Mick. Stanton Mick was first mentioned in Chapter 3 when Joe Chip got the newspaper account he's on luna he's on the moon and he's trying to build basically light speed or near light speed engines that will provide more opportunity for emigration and for the frontier settlement so there's a little bit of the frontier in this book not a whole lot yet but just a little bit and it, it's suggestion it's something that's always in the background of dick's novels even if it's not the centerpiece of it like even in android's dream of electric sheep right it's a big part even though they never go into the frontier so it's talked about here, and this is going to be big business. So it's a big, uh, it's a big job, right? So Runciter assumes that there must be dozens and dozens of size working on that operation. So he comes up with a determination that 
he only need to use like 40 size. He actually inflates a little bit. He quotes her a price that's like enormous. I think it's like in the billions of, of credits. I'm not sure how much money that's supposed to represent, but it's a lot, right? I think the salary for one of these uh, inertials is like 700 a month or something. So, or is it 400 a week? You see it later on when he hires when he hires Pat. So she says she has to go think about it, right? So she goes to the other room to talk, call the boss man, and she comes back and she says she can do the job, but she can only she only wants eleven inertials. That's how many. That's the most they're going to afford. And Runciter has doubts that it can get done, but he wants the job and he wants to root out those missing telepaths. So he agrees and eventually comes up with a contract with Mrs. Wirt for pretty much immediately sending eleven inertials to to the moon to this business to to help root out the size that are there now while she was talking to the boss man runciter meets with joe chip and pat and joe comes in and says i got this new anti-psi and it's like speak of the devil we we need some uh powerful new anti-psi abilities so you know they get their introduction runciter is not really clear what it is that this young lady does but you know he he does begin the process of hiring her based on Joe Chip's recommendation. So, but he also has that piece of paper knowing that she's sort of dangerous, that she could be a threat. Um, so that, that's what happens in chapter four. So we get, Runciter Associates gets this new job, right, uh, on the moon. And they're going to have about 11, 11 nurses are going to go there and, and attempt to, to do this operation. It's all on short notice. It's not according to procedure, but... Runcer can't say no to to this. It solves a lot of his problems, business-wise, and also in trying to determine where those missing, holeless, employed size and, and telepaths are. So that's the first four chapters, the first quarter of the novel. We're already wow, we're already a quarter of the way through this this novel. This is this is a quick read. It really is. Um, so in the next episode, we'll look at chapters five through eight. Uh, so read those. Read. Uh, the world of talent again if you haven't maybe read uh, what dead men say to have a closer idea of of half-life um, and what that's all about but in the next episode we'll, we'll get to the halfway point by looking at chapters five through eight so let me know what you think of this part of the novel do you agree with me that this part of the story could stand up on its own as a good novel or do you think uh, it really needs the second half um, Let me know if you have any thoughts about how Dick is portraying the post-human in this particular novel. So those are some of the main themes here. What do you think of Half-Life and how it's used? Do you think Dick is projecting his own anxieties about marriage once again uh, in his depiction of, of Half-Life? So as always, you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or just leave a comment below on, on the Podbean account or, or leave a review on iTunes or, or however you want to make a comment on my, on my work. Um, so I'll see you next time with, with chapters 5 through 8 of, of Ubik. Thanks for listening. You must search till you find the You will find peace and contentment forever if you're